All right, let's start in prayer. Father, we come to you tonight. And Lord, we're just so uh, grateful, Lord, for your character and your kindness and your grace uh, towards us. God, I thank you for every person that you've brought here to worship with us tonight. And I just pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds, Lord. And I pray ultimately that you would lead us to yourself tonight. Lord, that we would see your character, that we would see who you are, Lord, and that we would respond with worship. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. All right, good evening. It's good to be with you guys tonight. Um, so as, as I'm up here tonight, I actually find myself in a bit of a, a precarious situation. So for those of you in the room who are maybe middle school or high school students, this was an important week, right? What happened this week? It's the, the, the end of the school year, right? School's out for summer. And what happens in the brains of middle school and high school students when school's out for summer? They switch to the off position. Okay. In addition to that, we've had several people mention how excited they are about uh, ice cream social tonight. Well, there is one thing standing between you and a big bowl of ice cream, and that's me. Okay. And so with that, I've been given the task on top of that to explain to you the notoriously difficult doctrine of the Trinity. So my question is tonight, uh, why should you, uh, teenagers, turn your brains back to the own position? And for all of us, why should you put ice cream out of your brain for, say, maybe about a half hour to really concentrate and really engage your mind with the Lord as we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, to get to that, I want you to imagine a situation. Imagine that uh, I come home from work one day, and I come into the door of my house, and I'm just all of a sudden I'm just overwhelmed with just emotion and affection for my dear wife, Sarah. And so I just come to Sarah, and I just... I just put my arms around her, give her a big hug, and I say, Sarah, I just love you so much. I love your blonde hair. I, I, love, I love how short you are. You know what? Like, tonight is about you. Let's just sit down and watch a football game and do what you love. <laughs> Will Sarah be flattered by that? No. So despite, despite the depth of my emotions, I'm not really demonstrating love for her at that point, am I? Right, because love seeks to understand its object. And it's only after establishing a right understanding of your object of love that you, begin, that you can begin to really know and to really begin to experience a person. So it's on the basis of true knowledge only that intimacy can exist. So we shouldn't imagine that our relationship with God is entirely different from that, should we? So we here at Cornerstone care very, very much about the doctrine of the Trinity, and the reason that we care about the doctrine of the Trinity is because we care very much about God. And so the reason that you should give forth the effort to make it through a sermon on the doctrine of the Trinity is because in doing so, you get more of God, and we can know him better, and we can love him more. So the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the, kind of to give you a little bit of a roadmap of the sermon tonight, our structure will be a little bit different. I'm not going to be coming out of one particular passage of Scripture, so we're going to kind of survey what the Bible as a whole teaches about the Trinity. Um, but don't feel like you need to flip around to follow me around to each individual verse. I'll put the, the main verses up on the screen for you. And we're going to kind of look at the doctrine of the Trinity in two parts. Part one of the sermon, we're just going to ask the question, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? 
And what do we believe about the doctrine of the Trinity? But then for the second part of the sermon, I really want us to focus on making a shift uh, from understanding to transformation. So, okay, this is what the doctrine of the Trinity is, but how should the doctrine of the Trinity actually affect the way that I experience God? So our big idea tonight is, uh, is this, and I've phrased this as an exhortation. The exhortation is, may we strive to understand and experience the triune God as a church. So first question, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, first of all, it's important for us to acknowledge something. The word Trinity is not found anywhere in the Bible, not in Scripture, anywhere. There's no one passage of the Bible whose main purpose is to explain the doctrine of the Trinity to you. So does this mean that the doctrine of the Trinity is therefore unbiblical? Well, I would say that the answer to that is no. I don't think that the doctrine of the Trinity is unbiblical. And here's why. Because I think the doctrine of the Trinity is the only way to do justice to three statements that the Bible does clearly affirm. And so that's what we're going to focus on here. What are those three statements that form the biblical basis of the doctrine of the Trinity? And I want to give credit here. Um, I'm dependent on, uh, on writer and theologian named Wayne Grudem for this. I'm following kind of his way of laying this out because I think it's been most helpful in my life. So what are the three statements that the Bible clearly affirms about the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, the first thing that the Bible clearly affirms is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity, are distinct persons. And what I mean by this is the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. And on and on we could go. And we see this in several places in the Bible. Uh, one really uh, good story for this is the story of whenever Jesus is baptized at the beginning of his earthly ministry. If you just maybe recall the story with me, for those of you who know it, remember Jesus, who is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is baptized in the water. Whenever Jesus the Son comes up from the water in baptism, who descends on him as a dove? The third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. And then who speaks from heaven? The Father, the first person in the Trinity, speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. That story is nonsensical if the Father, the Son, and the Spirit aren't distinct persons from one another. Do you guys see that? Another um, good story for this is the passage that Jonathan actually read for us uh, tonight, and that is Acts 7.55. I won't go through the time to reread the text for you, but the story is, is that Stephen has been preaching, and he's really upset some people with his preaching. And in fact, right after he has this vision, uh, he's actually murdered. He's uh, killed with stones right after this. But in this moment, it says that Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit, that he looks to heaven, he sees the glory of God, and then he says, sees Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father. So, Je so Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. He sees the Father and Jesus, three persons all present at once, distinct from one another. So statement one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. The second thing that the, Bible, um, that the Bible affirms is that each person of the Trinity is fully God. So the Father is God. Whoop, I think it went too far there. We're good. Uh, so we see that the Father is God. So we want to think about this with each of the persons of the Trinity. The Bible assumes that God the Father is God. Uh, this is maybe no place more clear than the fact that Jesus prays to him. Um, second, the Bible is also clear in a multitude of different ways 
uh, that Jesus is also God. And Andy did a great job of explaining this earlier for us tonight. I actually had like a whole sermon on this point that I had to cut out, but I think Andy did a good job of explaining that to us. Jesus is God. And actually, I wanted for, for this for us to look at John 1.1. This is the first sentence of John's gospel. And just to give you a little bit of background, whenever John writes in this verse, when he talks about the word, he's talking about Jesus. So when you see the word, just think Jesus in this verse. John writes this. He says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's a very straightforward statement. The word, that is Jesus, was God. But I think this is a really neat verse because this not only teaches that Jesus was God, but notice that it also teaches that Uh, that Jesus is distinct from God the Father. So it says the word was with God, that is Jesus and the Father are distinct. Jesus was God. That's statement number two, Jesus was fully God. And I just want to reiterate the point that Andy made. Uh, Our belief that Jesus is God and is to be worshipped as such is the only reason we're having this discussion tonight. That the reason that we think about the doctrine of the Trinity is because we prior to that have been convinced that Jesus is God's Son. And this is actually what leads us on the road to thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity. So then, uh, so the Father is clearly God, Jesus the Son is God, and we also see in the Bible that uh, the Holy Spirit is also affirmed as God. Um, there's a lot of places to go for this. A good story comes in uh, the book of Acts. Uh, chapter 5. What we get in Acts chapter 5, just to give you a little bit of context, is uh, this is a story about a husband and wife who were part of the early church. Their names were uh, Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, there we go, got it up. Uh, Their names were Ananias and Sapphira. And what Ananias and Sapphira um, decided to do, they had a piece of property. They sold this piece of property and they decided they were going to take some of the property and bring it and give it to the church. It's a good thing to do, right? But they also made a plan that they were going to tell everyone that they were actually bringing the full price that they made off the sale. So in other words, they were going to lie about what they were actually bringing. And then uh, listen to what Peter says whenever Ananias brings this. He says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, was it the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. So notice what Peter says to Ananias here. The first thing that he says is you've, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then the last thing that he says is you've not lied to human beings. You've lied to whom? You've lied to God. So this is a good verse that shows us that the Holy Spirit is fully God, just like God the Father and just like God the Son. So we see, what does the Bible I, I, absolutely clearly affirmed. The Bible is very clear that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Yet the Bible is also very clear that each one of these persons is fully God. So does that mean that we just believe that we worship three gods? Well, no. We just sang a song tonight titled, The One True God. So we think that the third thing that the Bible teaches very clearly is that there is one God. There is one God. And this is, uh, this is all throughout the Bible um, but one of the places we see this most clearly is in the Shema, which we memorize this spring with our Exodus series. It comes in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And this is affirmed repeatedly in the New Testament as well. So, thank you for 
uh, hanging with me through that, blaze through a lot of different scriptures to kind of see. But what we see is this. The Bible is clear that the three persons of the Trinity are distinct persons. The Bible is clear that each one is fully God, and the Bible is also clear that there is only one God. And what, what we mean whenever we say that we believe in the Trinity is we mean that we believe that all three of those statements are true at the same time. That's what we believe. Now, there are a lot of passages in the Bible that talk about all three persons of the Trinity together. Uh, But I want us to look at one particular verse that I think is the most concise statement of the Trinity in the whole Bible. And this comes from uh, the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is giving his disciples their final mission before he goes back to heaven. I want you to notice... Uh, I want you to notice what Jesus says here in Matthew 28. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I wanted us to read this verse for two reasons. Okay, the first thing is, obviously, this is a verse that talks about all three persons of the Trinity together. But the second reason is, I wanted to point out the grammar of this verse to you, right? I weren't, I, like, Students, I told you, like, we were going to talk about some school stuff, so we're going to talk about some grammar, okay? So let's look at the grammar. My life is centered around grammar. So the phrases, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, these are what are called prepositional phrases, okay? You guys with me? Prepositional phrases. And prepositional phrases always modify a head word, okay? So for my grammarians out there, What is the head word that all three of those prepositional phrases are modifying? Right, it's a noun. It's modifying the noun name. The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if I haven't completely lost you by talking about grammar, let's just keep going deeper into the cave, right? Okay, so in English, nouns indicate something called number, which is a fancy way of saying we have singular nouns, we have plural nouns. What is the grammatical number of the noun name? It is a singular noun, but it is modified by both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I think actually what we have here is on the lips of the second person of the Trinity, I think we have a very clear affirmation of the unity of the Godhead, that is one God, but also a clear affirmation of plurality of persons within the Godhead. Do you guys see this? So I, I, basically what I want us to see from, from all the scriptures that we've surveyed so far, I want you to see that the doctrine of the Trinity really is built on a biblical basis. And it is, it, is a, it is our attempt to faithfully explain what the entirety of the scriptures teach. So what do we here at Cornerstone believe about the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, I have here, this is from our Statement of Faith. Article 2 of our Statement of Faith, we say, We believe in one God eternally existing in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the way that this looks at my home with my four-year-old is uh, we just use our fingers. And we just say, we say over and over again, one God, three persons. One God, three persons. Now, it took us a while. Uh, Initially, we would say, Emma, how many true gods are there? And she'd say, there's one true God. And we'd say, how many persons uh, is that one God? And she'd say, three persons. And then we'd say, who are those persons? the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then I'd say, so how many true gods are there? And she'd go, three. <laughs> so, so, now, so now we've actually simplified it. We just say over and over again, one God, three persons. Now there's a very, very important word in our statement of faith here as well. 
And this is, we say we believe in one God eternally existing in three persons. So we want you to know that whenever we affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, we're not saying that God functions in three different roles at different points in history. We're actually saying that each person of the Trinity has existed for all of eternity and that all the persons of the Trinity have existed in relationship with one another for all of eternity, which is very, very big for what we understand about the nature of God. And we'll get back to that later. So this is what we believe about the doctrine of the Trinity. This is very, very important, but I want you to see that this is not enough. Think about this with me for a moment. Uh, The devil believes in the doctrine of the Trinity, yet his heart is unmoved by God. So maybe a really good question for us to think about tonight is this. Uh, How can we believe in the Trinity in a way that is different from the way that the devil believes in the Trinity? So what we're going to look at kind of for the rest of the message tonight is basically this question. How should the doctrine of the Trinity transform our church? And I think a good place for us to start with this is to think about the way that people use analogies to describe the Trinity, right? People love to pull out, and I think people mean well whenever they they try to use analogies to describe the doctrine of the Trinity. It has a long history, right? St. Patrick, all the way back to the 5th century, teaching uh, Irish pagans about Christianity. What did he use to teach the Trinity? Use the clover, right? The three-leaf clover. It has three leaves, yet it's one clover. People a lot of times like to talk about an egg, right? They'll talk about how an egg has a yolk, it has a white, it has a shell, yet it's one egg. Or people will talk about water. Uh, Water can exist in three different states. It can exist in its solid state as ice, it can exist as liquid water, and it can exist as water vapor, and so on and so forth. The only problem with these analogies that we come up with is each is none of our analogies are able to accommodate all three of the statements that we just looked at that the Bible confirms. They're going to have to violate one of those statements. So, for example, the clover analogy, bless St. Patrick's heart. Uh, the clover analogy violates statement number two. Uh, that is, though, there are, though a clover is made up of three distinct leaves, one clover leaf is not fully a clover, Right? Um, So it doesn't account for statement number two. Uh, The water analogy, for example, uh, it doesn't work with statement number one. Uh, That is, uh, ice, liquid water, and water vapor are not distinct from one another, and they can't all coexist at the same time together. So our analogies keep breaking down. Now here's the deal. I'm not just like a meanie who likes to come up and poke holes in analogies. So what I'm interested in tonight isn't so much that the analogies don't work, What I'm interested in is why do none of our analogies for the Trinity work? Like, people have thought about this for a very long time. And why haven't we been able to come up with a satisfactory analogy? And for that, what would be more perfect than another analogy? Okay, so this this is an analogy that I've always found really, really helpful. And this comes from uh, C.S. Lewis. He writes about this in Mere Christianity. And I know that we've been advertising, uh, for those of you guys who've been here, the book Mere Christianity. Uh, actually, the, the, last, uh, the fourth part of the book Mere Christianity is actually about the doctrine of the Trinity. So it'd be really good to read. Uh, okay, so to give you a little background, we're just going to read Lewis in his own words because uh, for those of you who've read C.S. Lewis, he is uh, 100 times more eloquent than I am. Uh, But I want to kind of set up the analogy. C.S. Lewis bases his analogy on the way that things function differently in different dimensions. Okay? And so here's here's what I mean. Let's think about uh, existence in the first dimension. 
The only things that can exist in the first dimension are straight lines, things which possess only length. But what about the second dimension? What we get in the second dimension is we begin to get figures which possess both length and they possess height. But what are figures made of? Many straight lines come together, that is many one-dimensional objects, come together to make one two-dimensional object. Okay, you guys tracking with me? And then finally, we come to the third dimension. And this is where we have uh, solid objects, things that have length, height, and depth. Something like a cube, for example. And in the third dimension, we see that many figures, many two-dimensional figures, come together to make one solid body. For example, I have a cube up here. What is a cube made out of? Six squares, right? Six squares come together to make one cube. Now, this is your background. Now we're going to see what Lewis does with this. C.S. Lewis writes, he says, Now the Christian account of God involves just the same principle. The human level is a simple and rather empty level. On the human level, one person is one being. And any two persons are two separate beings. Just as in two dimensions, say on a flat sheet of paper, one square is one figure, and any two squares are two separate figures. On the divine level, you still find personalities. But up there, you find them combined in new ways which we who do not live on that level cannot imagine. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. Of course, we cannot fully conceive a being like that. Just as if we were so made that we perceived only two dimensions in space, we could never properly imagine a cube. Now, if, you, if you're following with Lewis here, the point is not that God is like a cube. The point is, why is it that we, though we can understand what the Bible teaches about the Trinity, why is it that we can't exhaustively comprehend the Trinity? Why does it fry our brains? And why does it kill all of our analogies? It's because God exists in a higher dimension than we exist in. It's because God is, is infinitely greater than we are. And the doctrine of the Trinity reminds us of this. And doesn't this ring true? Right? If, if the God that we worship had a nature just like ours, wouldn't that suggest that perhaps we had come up with the idea in the first place? It, does it not ring true that God is more complex and more beautiful and more glorious than we are? And isn't this good? I think the best way to put this, as Sarah and I were talking about this earlier this week, and I just love the way that she said this. Sarah said, the Trinity is not meant to make us feel stupid, but it is meant to make us feel small. In the same way that you get that joy-filled, shrinking feeling whenever you stand next to the greatness of the ocean. So how should the Trinity transform our church? How should it transform your walk with the Lord? It should cause us to be enamored by the greatness of God. It should lead us to worship. Now with this, I want us to see that the Trinity shows us God's greatness and like how much higher than us he is. But the Trinity also shows us how near, near to us God is. And I think this is amazing. Think about this statement. God is love. God is love. Now here's my question. Before God created humans, was God love? 
Was God love before he created us? If we believe in the Trinity, we believe God at the very core of his nature is a God who has always been loving and is a God who has always existed in relationship to another. And isn't this amazing? And what is so incredible to me about this is that this shows us that the entirety of the Christian life, what it is really about, is it's about God's love which has existed within himself for all eternity, being turned outwards towards us. It's about the God who is love and who has always been love, just bringing us into that love and into that relationship. And this is what the Christian life is really all about. And we could, we could extend this to any part of the Christian life, but let's just think about two areas. Let's think about how, the way, how salvation works in Scripture. The Bible tells us that our salvation was planned by God the Father. It says that before the world was created, God planned our salvation. And it tells us that the Father is the one who has sent the Son on the rescue mission to accomplish our salvation. Just think about John 3.16. What? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So the Father plans our salvation, sends the Son. Yet the Bible tells us that Jesus is our mediator. He's the one who has come. He's lived the life we should have lived. He died in our place. He's risen again. And it's through him that we come to know God. Jesus is our mediator. But all this is no good to us if the Holy Spirit doesn't come and breathe life into our dead hearts. And if he doesn't remove the veil from our eyes so that we can see God's glory uh, shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we see that whenever you come to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus, whenever you experience salvation, you're experiencing God as triune. Do you see this? And this is why one of the things I love, the Bible has so many different analogies for the way that it speaks about salvation. I think one of the most tender is the Bible speaks about salvation as adoption. And we read from Romans 8 tonight, which talks about that. This is that salvation is us becoming God's children. Salvation is really about God the Father becoming God my Father. Salvation is about God bringing us into himself. Isn't that remarkable? Think about the way that prayer works. To whom did Jesus teach us that we should normally address our prayers? Our Father, right? Remember Jesus taught us, our Father who is in heaven. So, so typically whenever we pray, we address our prayers to God the Father. Yet what is the only way that we can address God the Father in prayer? In whose name do we come? We come in Jesus' name whenever we pray. It's the only way that we can come to God in prayer. Yet whatever even gives our minds or our hearts the desire to begin to pray to God in the first place? Well, we read from Romans 8 tonight that says that it's by God's Spirit that we cry out to God, Abba, Father. And so we see that whenever you, dear Christian, pray in the morning or in the evening, you're experiencing the triune God. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that incredible? And so what I want you to see is that the shape of the entire Christian life is Trinitarian. And you need to see that Christianity is not ultimately really about us becoming better people. What Christianity is really about is about knowing God and about knowing God as triune. So I just want to say, dear Christian, as of you, maybe you're a part of Cornerstone. Uh, maybe you're visiting with us, but you are a Christian. Let me just ask you, what are you seeking in the Christian life? What is, what is your goal? Why are you coming to worship with us tonight? Why are you reading the scriptures during the week? Why are you praying? I hope it's so that you can know God better. I hope it's so that you can experience the Trinity in a more full way. Because that's the point of the Christian life. 
And maybe there's some of you who are maybe new to the Christian life, or maybe some of you aren't quite sure about Christianity, and I want you to know very, very clearly what Christianity is offering you. Here's the deal. You can go to a ton of places in Westford that will help you become a more moral person or things like that. But what you need to know that it is only in the gospel that you're offered a relationship with the God who made you. And so how should the Trinity transform us as a church? Well, may it cause us to seek intimate relationship with the triune God. May it call us to know God. And so if this is what the Christian life is really about, is this a solo mission? Well, the very nature of the Trinity would suggest to us that it would not be a solo mission. So I want us to look here. We're going we're gonna to look in depth at a prayer that Jesus prayed. And to me, this is one of just the most amazing, um, just beautiful passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. It's like a diamond. There's so much to it. This is coming from John chapter 17. The context is Jesus is praying the night before his crucifixion. And for most of his prayer, he's praying directly for his disciples who are right with him. But what we're going to come to is a part of the passage where Jesus begins to actually pray for you and me, which is quite remarkable. Hear what Jesus says. He says, my prayer, my prayer is not for them alone, that is his immediate disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus uh, prays two things here. He prays, may they be one like us. He prays that we would be one in the same way that he and his father are one. And this is a remarkably joyful thing to be called to as Christians, isn't it? We are to actually reflect the Trinity as a community of different and distinct people who are nonetheless united by love. And the love that we have for one another is to be a reflection of the love that exists between God the Father and God the Son. The love that unites the Trinity is to be reflected in our body. Isn't this amazing? We're to be one like the Trinity. And so I just want to encourage you. I think there are a lot of things that I'm so encouraged by with our church. Um, I absolutely love uh, that so many people enjoy staying an hour after the service to just visit and to be able to spend time together. I think that's such a wonderful thing. I, I do think there's a warmth to our body life that I'm so encouraged by. I want to encourage you to continue on in that. Uh, please, stay for our ice cream social. Let's continue, let's continue. Have people into your home. Let, let's do life together. I want to challenge you in two ways in addition to that as we continue to grow in this. I, I want us to constantly remember that friendships... Um, ultimately center around a common interest. And so as we grow to know one another better and better, as we form closer and closer relationships, I pray that what would form the basis of our friendships would not be like a common love for the Patriots or maybe like a TV show that we both like. Let's make sure that as we're building relationships with one another, that we're also growing with one another in our faith in Christ, that we're, we're praying with and for one another. We're uh, talking about the scriptures together. And this doesn't mean that you need to go have a, a Bible study at snack time. Uh, but it does mean that we need to be going deeper with one another 
as we all pursue Christ. And then another thing I just want to challenge you on this briefly, and I know we're looking a couple months out, uh, but we're going to have another small group session beginning in September. And you need to know that small groups are so very important, not just because we want to have people enrolled in small groups, but small groups, I think, is ground zero for where we learn to do life together as a community. So I would just encourage you, exhort you, um, small groups have been so great in, in my growth as a Christian. It's absolutely worth the effort and worth the commitment to commit to being a weekly engaged in Christian community. So what we see is this. So how should the Trinity transform our church? May we reflect the Trinity by doing life together in love. So Jesus prays here that we would be one like he and the Father are one, but he also prays that we would be one in him and the Father. And this is remarkable. I think this is where my brain kind of starts to, to flick, to like, you know, kind of go haywire. So what Jesus is basically saying here is that he wants uh, his disciples to be united together to reflect his relationship with the Father, but that somehow that is actually part of us being in God. This doesn't mean that we become part of the Trinity, but it means that this is how we actually experience God. Look at how Jesus phrases this in the last sentence of his prayer, verse 26. Jesus says, I've made you known to them and will continue to make them known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Jesus prays that the, that the love that God the Father has for him would be in his disciples. So this is remarkable. Christ's desire is that the love the Father has for him may be actually come to be experienced by us as a community. So what we see is that we come to experience the triune God the most fully when we experience him together. Isn't this remarkable? So as we, as we, as we look at the, at the doctrine of the Trinity, and there's so much to see here, I, I hope that you understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I, I hope that you do understand what we mean when we affirm that we believe in one God who exists eternally in three persons. Um, but I hope that you're also starting to get a vision for how understanding the Trinity can actually transform the way that we function as a church and transform the way that we as uh, Christians uh, relate to God in our individual walks with him. I, I pray that this will help us to understand and experience the triune God as a church. And with this, I kind of want to leave, I want you to imagine something with me as we conclude. Okay, so uh, some of you know, some of you don't know that our very own uh, Andrew Anganis, a couple of years ago, uh, with our very own Anthony Cordemanche, who's currently separated from us by the Atlantic Ocean, uh, that they went on a trip to Siberia, Russia, and actually uh, hiked... um, in the mountains and forest uh, right beside Lake uh, Baikal, which I believe is the deepest freshwater body in the world. Is that right? Um, So just this amazing Siberian wilderness. So I want you to imagine with me for a second that you are going on an expedition uh, into the Siberian wilderness. And that it's not a terrifying thing. You actually want to go, right? That's kind of scary, isn't it? Okay, what is, what is one thing that you would absolutely essentially need to be able to successfully hike a trail uh, in Siberia, Russia? You would need a lot of different things. Uh, but I think one thing that you would definitely need is you would need a map, right? You couldn't begin to experience the trail without a map. And so Andrew actually graciously shared with me one of their trail maps, which is helpfully in Russian. Uh, 
But I think you can still see the trail map. Uh, it's the red dotted line. This is, this is the trail that they hiked. So you've got your map. You've studied it. You understand it. Does this mean that you've experienced the beauty of the Siberian wilderness? No, you haven't. The map is necessary, but the map in and of itself is insufficient, isn't it? In a way, you should actually think about the map as an invitation. The map itself is an invitation for you to actually enter in and experience the beauty that is uh, the Siberian wilderness. And in the same way, I think that's how we should think about the doctrine of the Trinity tonight. It's absolutely necessary for us to understand what the Trinity means. But that in and of itself is insufficient. And so what I think that God is, is, is doing for you tonight as we're thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity, I want you to view this as God's invitation to you deeper into himself. God is inviting you into a, a deeper experience of who he is, to know him more deeply and to love him more. And so I just, I just ask that you would pray, that you would ask God, what is that step that he's calling you to, to go deeper into his beauty? Would you pray for me? Father, we, uh, we're just amazed by who you are tonight. And Lord, we acknowledge Lord, that you are greater and that you are higher than we are. And Lord, that you are beyond the full comprehension of our minds. Yet, Lord, we thank you that you have graciously revealed yourself to us, Lord, in ways that we can't understand. And so, Lord, I just pray for each one of us uh, in the room, Lord. I pray that you would just give us a desire to know you more deeply. And, Lord, I do pray that you would just mold our church, Lord, that our church would reflect your character to our community. Lord, turn our hearts towards you, Lord, and just may we be characterized as a people of worship. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.